Welcome to Sparking Wholeness, where we talk all things related to nutrition for mind, body, and soul. I'm your host, Erin Carey. I'm a survivor of bipolar disorder and a self-proclaimed nutrition nerd who loves asking why. As a certified integrative nutrition health coach, my goal is to help people find balance, and I want to help you find ways to spark wholeness in your life. For more information, check out sparkingwholeness.com or on the Instagram handle, Sparking Wholeness. And now, get ready for today's awesome show. Hey everyone, it's Erin Carey, and I can't wait for you to hear from today's guest, Richard Capriola, who will be discussing all things adolescent addiction. But before we get there, I want to, for sure, thank our sponsor for today. Today's podcast is sponsored by Amp Human. Amp Human is a human performance company dedicated to helping athletes at all levels unlock their limitless potential. Their latest innovation, D Plus Lotion, is a first-of-its-kind gel-based lotion that delivers vitamin D directly through the skin, which I think is so exciting. With limited sunlight during winter and more time indoors, there's never been a more important time to supplement with vitamin D. Just two pumps applied to the inner forearms contains 5,000 IU of vitamin D3 to boost your immunity, improve sleep quality, and support brain function. Now, this stuff, you guys, this is awesome. It is backed by two clinical trials. It is proven to triple your vitamin D levels within three to four months of daily use. Now, I am personally so excited about this because I have a difficult time absorbing vitamin D, whether it's through the sun or through pill form. And so I can't wait to start using this lotion and see how it impacts my vitamin D levels. So say goodbye to pills and say hello to D plus lotion. This is the easiest way to do vitamin D. Visit amphuman.com slash wholeness and use the code wholeness15 to get 15% off D plus lotion today. I'm gonna spell that out for you. That is A-M-P H-U-M-A-N dot com slash W-H-O-L-E-N-E-S-S. Use the code wholeness15 to get 15% off AMP Human Vitamin D Plus Lotion. Now let's get right into today's episode. I'm sitting here with Richard Capriola. He spent 11 years working as an addictions counselor for Menninger Clinic in Houston, Texas, before retiring in 2019. Menninger Clinic is one of the top 10 psychiatric hospitals in the United States and specializes in the assessment, stabilization, and treatment of adults and adolescents with substance abuse and psychiatric disorders. During his tenure there, he worked in the adolescent treatment program and the adult comprehensive psychiatric assessment and stabilization program. Working closely with psychiatrists, psychologists, social workers, and nurses, he was responsible for comprehensive assessments and individual and group counseling with patients diagnosed with substance use disorders. So thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, I'm really excited. You have a book out called The Addicted Child, and it also has a workbook for parents, correct? Yes, um, I I wrote both of them uh, to be a a resource for parents and families uh, who want to learn more about adolescent substance abuse. So the title is The Addicted Child, A Parent's Guide to Adolescent Substance Abuse. 
there's a parent workbook that goes along that I think can be helpful for parents. It's really focused on helping them work through some of the issues that they may be facing as a result of having a child who's drinking alcohol or using drugs. Yes. And I, I think that that is, it is so timely to be talking about that. We were speaking a little bit before we started the recording and right now, you know, we are in the middle of a mental health crisis. I think more so than ever before 2020 was a crazy year and it really um, changed a lot of the ways we discuss mental health because we are seeing mental health concerns rise. And so I'll, I'll ask you what I asked before are we seeing a rise in substance abuse with teens like we're seeing a rise in anxiety and some of these other things? I think we're definitely seeing a rise in things like anxiety and depression as a result of this pandemic. Everybody's lives have sort of been turned upside down, and that includes adolescents who are now into a different school environment than they have been in the past who perhaps are alienated from their close friends. Um, so I think that dynamic has changed. In, in terms of substance use, what we have seen over the long term of the last 15, 20, 25 years has been a decline in use of substances, illicit substances. That has sort of stabilized over the past few years um, with the exception of a rather remarkable and dramatic increase in vaping substances. Adolescents now are turning to vaping nicotine instead of smoking cigarettes. They're turning to vaping marijuana as opposed to, say, smoking it through a, a joint or, or other methods. Um, and now there's <clears throat> different flavors of, of, of vapes that kids can turn to. So we've seen in the last few years a dramatic increase in adolescents turning to vaping. The, the, they, they're still drinking a lot of alcohol. Uh, that still is a very popular substance. Um, they're still smoking a lot of marijuana, uh, more through vaping than anything else. And to a certain extent, um, a smaller percentage are turning to uh, prescription drugs, things like Adderall and some of the other prescription drugs that have been prescribed for attention deficit disorder, hyperactivity type of disorder. Um, you know, those are things like Adderall and Ritalin. Uh, but, but still, alcohol and marijuana seem to be the top, top drugs that kids are turning to. That, that's interesting. I wonder what it is about those two. Is, is it accessibility? Are they more accessible? Or is it? That's interesting. It is accessibility because when we ask adolescents, how easy is it for you to say, get marijuana? Uh, a large percentage of them say it's very easy or it's fairly easy for them to get. Um, and alcohol, of course, that's, that's readily available oftentimes in the home. Um, so I think availability is a key factor. And another key factor, Aaron, is that adolescents don't perceive a lot of great harm, say to marijuana. When we ask them, yeah. do you think marijuana is harmful? Most of them say no, they don't think there's at least a great harm to using marijuana. So availability, low perception of risk or harm, I think those are two factors that contribute to adolescents continuing to use either alcohol or substances like marijuana. Yeah, no, that's, that's really good. And I think what's interesting, especially about the marijuana, and I definitely want to touch on this, 
is because I think a lot of adults feel the same way, right? Like they say, oh, it's, it's being used medically, so it's okay. And it's, you know, but I will say just from my own experience, and I don't mind saying this because it's a part of my story and it's what I share, it induced mania in me and it induced psychotic episodes in me. And so I don't think that it is an appropriate tool for anybody because you don't know how your brain's going to respond. So I, I have to throw that in there because I know a lot of adults right now are like, oh, medical marijuana, we need to legalize it. Da, da, da. And I'm like, every brain is different. <laughs> we can't just, can't say Every that. brain is different. And um, one of the big differences between adults and adolescents is brain development. So while an adult may think it's okay to smoke marijuana, um, their brain is fully developed. Uh, it, it is not okay for an adolescent whose brain is still in the process of maturing and developing to use marijuana or any other substance. Um, that, that's a big difference between adults and adolescents. Yeah, I'm so glad you touched on that, actually, because that's what that was going to be my first thing I was going to ask is what what makes their brain so vulnerable to substance abuse and, and to this type of thing. And I know in your book, you do explain a little bit about mm -hmm. the dopamine and, and maybe you can kind of give a rundown of that for our listeners, because I think it's fascinating. Well, I think I think there's two things that that make a person vulnerable to substances, whether they're an adult or, or an adolescent. And one is genetics. Um, you know, probably uh, 40 to 60% of a person's vulnerability to become addicted to a substance is genetics. Um, and, and that's true of any disease. If a woman has a history of breast cancer in her family, she's more at risk. If you have a history of diabetes in your family, you're more at risk. If you have a, a history of hypertension in your family, you're more at risk. Well, the same can be said for addiction too, if that runs in your family. So if that's 40 to 60%, what's the remaining percentage? Well, the remaining percentage is environmental factors, high levels of stress, um, uh, you know, social situations, uh, psychological situations like anxiety, for example. All of those can contribute to a person's becoming more vulnerable to using a substance. With adolescents, what I found was a high percentage of adolescents that I worked with were using a substance to medicate an underlying issue. A lot of it was anxiety. Sometimes it was depression. Um, and when you look beneath the surface of the alcohol or the drug use, you look beyond that, many times you will find that a child is using marijuana or using a substance to medicate an underlying issue that also will need to be treated. That is, and when you're talking about underlying issues, what maybe give some examples of, of what those would be. Okay. Um, I'll use marijuana as an example because a lot of the young men and women that I worked with at Menninger Clinic were smoking a lot of marijuana. They would smoke multiple times a day. And when I asked them to help me understand why they were smoking marijuana, the number one answer that they gave me was, it helps my anxiety. Um, so that's an example of how a young man or young woman will turn to a substance to help them medicate what I call an intolerable thought or feeling or memory. They're using it to auto-medicate, to, 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 to lessen the intensity of what is an intolerable feeling like anxiety. And it works. These young men and women would tell me that when they smoke marijuana, their anxiety level comes down. 
But what they don't realize is that it has a boomerang effect. It will actually make their anxiety worse over time. So a lot of kids, not all kids, but a lot of kids are using uh, some type of substance to medicate an underlying psychological issue. Now, other kids, um, they may be using it because of peer pressure. They may be just experimenting with it to see what it's like. They may try alcohol. They may try marijuana just to see what it's like. Um, depending on the response that they get, they will either stop or they will continue. And some of them uh, might, uh, might be subject to peer pressure. But for, but for some kids, there's an underlying issue, um, uh, psychological issue that may need to be addressed. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Now, I'm going to stop you right there because this is actually a really great time to thank our sponsor. Our sponsor for today's episode is Talkspace. As a listener of this podcast, you will get $100 off of your first month with Talkspace. To match with a licensed therapist today, go to Talkspace.com or download the app and make sure to use the code SPARKINGWHOLENESS. Now, this pandemic has really challenged everyone's mental health, myself included. Some of us are juggling childcare with working full-time in our homes, like me. Some of us are fighting with our partners more than usual, not naming any names. <laughs> and on top of that, many of us are encountering unexpected job changes and challenges. It's a lot to handle under normal circumstances, but it's especially grueling during a pandemic. All of this leads to a crushing amount of stress, trying to figure out how to manage that stress, which is why I am so grateful that I have my Talkspace therapist who lets me vent anytime I want. Talkspace therapists give you the support you need to feel your best. Talkspace has thousands of licensed therapists trained in over 40 specialties, including anxiety, depression, relationships, and so many more. Your therapist can help you set and achieve your goals. And I think you will be amazed at how much progress you make each week that you attend therapy. It is so, so crucial. Talkspace is affordable. It's a fraction of the cost of in-person therapy. It has a huge therapist network, as I mentioned before. It is also secure, and that's really important. It's secure and private using the latest end-to-end bank-grade encryption technology to store client information and complying with the latest HIPAA regulations. My therapist gave me practical guidance that really changed my life for the better. I am so glad that I found Talkspace and got the support that I need, and you can too. As a listener of this podcast, you will get $100 off of your first month with Talkspace. To match with a licensed therapist today, go to Talkspace.com, that's T-A-L-K-S-P-A-C-E.com, or download the app. Make sure to use the code SPARKINGWHOLENESS to get $100 off of your first month and show your support for the show. That's SPARKINGWHOLENESS and Talkspace.com. Now, we're talking about underlying issues in adolescent addiction, and we've talked a lot about trauma in this show, so I'm wondering how much does early childhood trauma impact adolescent addiction and play a role in substance abuse? I think it plays a big role because that's an example of these intolerable thoughts or feelings or memories that kids are turning to alcohol or drugs to medicate. So if you have a child who has a trauma history and, you know, and they begin to think about that and it affects them, then they're going to, like everybody else, they're going to find relief for that. So uh, trauma can play a very big role in, um, in adolescent substance abuse. 
Yeah, that's, that's super interesting. Now, how is it different? Is adolescent addiction, does it show up differently than say adult addiction? Is it, how does it manifest differently there, or the same? Uh, no, no, there are differences. I think uh, there are, there are important differences between uh, adult addiction and adolescent addiction. For example, um, many adults who are addicted to a substance um, have faced sometimes catastrophic consequences as a result of their use. They may have lost a relationship. They may have lost a marriage. Uh, they may have lost a job. And, and many are incarcerated. So adults who are addicted to substances have faced, in many cases, catastrophic consequences. Adolescents, on the other hand, have faced very few, if any, consequences other than their parents perhaps yelling at them or imposing some restrictions on them, which uh, oftentimes boomerangs and the child will, will react negatively to it. So um, a lot of adolescents have not faced the kind of catastrophic consequences that we see adults facing. And then the other big difference between uh, adults and adolescents is what we talked about earlier in brain development. Uh, adults after the age of 23, 24, 25, the brain's pretty much fully developed, but a young adolescent, their brain is still in the process of, of developing. So two big differences, brain development and uh, catastrophic consequences. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I, I, I just, yeah, going back to that prefrontal cortex brain development, that is, that's really key for a lot of things that, that kids are dealing with right now. And, and even, you know, I guess we get into some of the main substances that you talk about in your book, because I was really glad to see that you include gaming. I did not know that that was recognized as a substance abuse kind of diagnosis at, or, and then so, um, phones, cell phones did not realize that that, I mean, I know that we're, I mean, I'm probably addicted to my phone, so I get that, <laughs> but I, I just didn't realize that those two, you know, you put them in the same category as drugs and alcohol. So maybe you could speak yeah. to that a little bit. These are in categories that, um, that, I refer to as being process addictions. These are not chemical addictions. These are process addictions. And some good examples are um, eating disorders, um, self-injury, um, gaming. Um, these are all examples of uh, behaviors that can become compulsive. And many times what we see is that a child will develop a substance abuse disorder like alcohol or marijuana and also have a process disorder like an eating disorder or a self-injury. Um, when, when I was working at Menninger, um, I had patients, um, primarily girls, who were smoking a lot of marijuana, but also had uh, an eating disorder or they were self-injuring and cutting upon themselves. Now we could, because we were a hospital, we could keep the marijuana away from them. And when we did that, we tended to see an increase in their self-injury because what happened was both the marijuana and the self-injury were a coping skill. So if you take one of the coping skills away, it's not unusual to see the other coping skills spike up. So if you have a child that has both a substance use disorder and a process disorder, 
um, regardless of whether it's a, um, an eating disorder, self-injury, cell phone use, uh, whatever it is, both of those disorders need to be treated. They both need to be assessed and they both need to be treated. So if you're a parent and you suspect that your child might be uh, have an eating disorder or they might be self-harming, um, you need to really get a good comprehensive assessment because there could be other things going on like a substance use disorder as well. That is interesting. I like the differentiating between a chemical addiction and a process addiction, because I think that's important for people to understand because yeah, we do. And I, and I think even just the, the phrase addiction or being addicted to something, we throw that around all the time. Like I just jokingly, oh, I'm addicted to my phone. But I mean, this, this is serious in kids. And I, and I think it's interesting. We've never had, I mean, we see kids probably younger than 10 who are given cell phones, you know, and who are given access to all these gaming devices and it's super stimulating for their brains. And so I, I even wonder if that kind of sets them up, right? With the pleasure receptor in the brain and all of that. Is that, is that a cause for concern? It is because um, what you have just noted, we are seeing when some research that's being done in that we notice that um, when a child gets a text message, for example, or gets a phone call, you can see in many cases an increase in dopamine, which is a pleasure chemical in the brain, increase. Um, and, and it's the same dopamine that's in the brain, which is a chemical in the brain. It's a pleasure chemical in the brain. That's the chemical that spikes up when an individual is using a drug. That's what gives them the pleasure that they feel. Well, we see the same thing when a child who is um, uh, using a cell phone and gets a text message from somebody, you can see in many cases an increase in the dopamine in their brain. They feel good about it. They're getting pleasure from it. So it has many of the same characteristics to become obsessive, just like an alcohol or, or a drug use can be. Yeah. So, so I guess, so every time they get a notification, if it increases the dopamine, then they probably then desire more notifications, right? And wanting to get more likes or more comments or more. And that just ups the dopamine even more, just like with substances, you always need to kind of one up your usage from the time before. Is that correct? Yes, it sort of reinforces itself so that you want more and more and more. And then pretty soon you, 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 it's gotten out of control. And there's nothing wrong with having a cell phone. We want our kids to have a cell phone. We want them to be safe. We want them to be able to contact us and we want to be able to contact them. It's when a behavior becomes obsessive that it becomes uh, something that is taking over a child's life. So all of a sudden the child is on the phone rather than at dinner with the family or can't put the phone down for five minutes to have a conversation with us. Then it becomes to the point where it's really starting to take over and control a person's life. Hmm, that, that makes a lot of sense. And what about something like, and this is random just popped into my head. What about something like sugar? Does that stimulate the same response in the brain when kids eat a lot of sugar? 
again, it's back to a pleasure center in the brain. It's back to this dopamine, this pleasure chemical in the brain. It can be a substance um, like maybe marijuana. It can be a, a substance like a hardcore drug. It can be a behavior or an activity um, that produces pleasure. Anything or any substance that produce, produces a spike in pleasure sort of becomes reinforcing. So yes, if we eat a lot of sugar and we sort of start to crave sugar, we can actually have some withdrawals from it as well. And it can become sort of addictive as well. Hmm. So what are the warning signs? What should parents be on the lookout for with all of these things? Yeah, my book has um, um, warning signs listed uh, throughout the book. There are there are warning signs for marijuana. Uh, there are warning signs for alcohol. But I think in general, um, what I say to parents is watch what's going on with your child. Be noticing any type of changes that you see in your child's behavior, in their attitude, in their appearance. Uh, these can all be signs that there might be something going on underneath the surface. So for example, if you see a child who is making good grades and those degrades, grades start to, to start to decline. If you have a child who in the past has been very social and now starts to isolate. If you see a child who in the past would take great pride in their appearance, no longer cares what they look like. Um, if you have a child who was very very open about sharing their friends with you and now becomes very secretive. Those are the kinds of things that parents need to pay attention to. Don't necessarily write them off as being just developmental issues or, oh, this is just, you know, what teenagers do. That might be true in some cases, but it also might be a signal that there's something going on below the surface that you as a parent need to pay attention to. And if necessary, get some help and in, in assessments to figure out. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. And, and just that noticing changes, things happening that aren't usually like, what about like sleeping more than usual or would that be another? I don't. Yes. Okay. Yes. Any change in sleeping habits, sleeping pattern. That's another good example of things that okay. parents need to be aware of and pay attention to. And it's hard because some of these things, they do sound like a typical, oh, they're just being a teenager, right? Like this is just what a typical teenager does. But in many cases, it could be something else. You don't want to ignore it. In many cases, it may just be something going on that's, uh, that's not related to alcohol or drugs. It just may be something that they're going through. But the point is, don't ignore it. Mm -hmm. Check into it, find out what's going on, and then uh, go from there. Yeah, yeah. So what, what can parents... Like, what's the best way for a parent to respond if they do find out that their child is abusing a substance or has been exposed and seems to be repeating this activity? I think the first thing to do is have a, a conversation with your child uh, to, to talk about it. Now, you know, that can go one of two ways. The child will either um, open up and talk to you about what's going on or they'll shut down and deny anything. Uh, but at least you will have tried to start that conversation. If you have developed a good relationship uh, based upon years of building trust, um, the child may open up to you. That would be a little bit unusual, I think, but, uh, but, but there's also a, a possibility. So I would say start with having a conversation with your child. Now, if, um, 
you do believe that there is a serious issue going on and your child doesn't want to talk about it, um, then I think you have to turn to some professionals to get an assessment done. And my book outlines the kinds of assessments that parents should look for if they get to that point. Certainly, there will be an assessment for addictions for alcohol and drug use. But you can't stop there. It needs to go beyond that. It needs to include a psychological assessment to see if there's anything under the surface that might be driving a child to use alcohol or drugs. That's where you may discover the anxiety or the depression or the trauma. Um, so I think you also need a good, complete a comprehensive physical examination because you want to rule out any physical causes that might be going on. So a good comprehensive physical exam, a good psychological exam, and a comprehensive addictions assessment will help you put together the pieces that can lead to a diagnosis, and then the diagnosis can lead to a treatment plan. What, what are some, you mentioned the physical um, things that could show up. What are, what are some of those? Those could be, you know, um, anything from their blood levels being off um, to, um, you know, to different kinds of, 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 of physical symptoms that may be showing on different types of blood work can, can, can determine that. You might want to look at a genetic profile. Uh, we do a lot of genetics. And, and, and by genetics, it's not seeing who your grandparents were 20 mm -hmm. or 30 or 50 years ago. It's the kind of genetics uh, that that talks about which medications are likely to be most effective. How are you built genetically to respond to certain medications? And, and those can lead to, if your child needs medication, which medications are likely to work and which ones are not likely to work. So it's less of a hit and miss proposition. So that genetics type test often can be done as well. That's really interesting. Yeah, I think that's helpful. And I'm, I'm grateful that we have that now, especially when we're talking about mental health medications. Um, because when I was a teenager, we didn't have that. And it was just kind of hit or miss, you know, yes. like, well, let's let's take this drug, see if it works for you. And if you have a side effect, oh, too bad. But it is helpful to, to get that. Now, along those lines, would that be helpful for knowing um, even genetic predispositions to addiction? Or is that something totally different. That's totally different. This kind of testing is not going to tell you that. What this kind of testing is going to do, and we did a lot of this at Menninger, is going to tell you based upon how you're built genetically, which type of, of medications are likely to work. We had patients, for example, and these are mostly adults, who had been suffering from depression for years and years and years. And when we did the genetic profile on them, we discovered that they were taking medications that in all likelihood were never going to work for them in the first place. Wow. Uh, so it also opened up the possibility of discovering the medications that have a higher probability of working. So it's a very powerful type of test that can lead doctors to prescribe medications that have a higher percentage of, of, of working out for us, as opposed to a hit and miss, you know, type of an approach where they may prescribe an antidepressant and tell you to try it for a few weeks, and you come back and you say it's not working. So they increase the dose, you go a few more weeks and it's still not working and maybe they change to a different one. This one, I think has, this new test has helped us move more in the direction of finding a, med a medication that has a high probability of working perhaps the first time around. 
That's yeah, that's really good. That's helpful because I also know, I mean, I know there are different genetic SNPs that we have like MTHFR or COMT. There are all these different things that tell us, you know, whether we absorb things well or how our neurotransmitters are processing. And so I think because everybody's so individual, it's important to find out individually what's going to work best for a person. And, and I do, and I do wonder if certain brains, especially in teens, and like you mentioned before, some of those underlying concerns, like the anxiety, if they feel that their brain is working overtime, racing thoughts, and they find a substance, right? Like that helps kind of slow their brain Mm -hmm. down a little bit, then of course that's, that could prime them for addiction because you want to keep getting that feeling to get rid of the racing thoughts and the anxiety. So that's, yeah, exactly. And that's, that's, that's a, that's a good summary of, of pretty much what they do too. They, uh, you know, they, they learn about a substance and maybe another teenager says, Hey, try this. It helps for me. And then they find out that it does relieve that intolerable feeling or thought or emotion. And then that sort of reinforces continued use down the road. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Gosh, that's, it's sad, but it's, you know, I mean, I know it's been happening for dozens and dozens of years. Um, And you did mention in the pre-chat, this is something else I wanted to bring up because I thought this was fascinating, that our substance abuse rates are declining less than what they were like in the 60s or 70s, right? Yes, if we look at the long term, you know, the last 20 or 30 years, you know, we have seen a decline in a lot of the substances being used. Um, The ones that are still very popular continue to be alcohol. Um, They continue to be marijuana. Um, They continue to be, to a much less extent, some prescription medications like Adderall and Ritalin. Um, And the one that we have seen a very dramatic increase in just the last few years has been vaping. It is vaping of nicotine. Tens, uh, kids tend to smoke less cigarettes, but they're vaping nicotine now. And vaping also of marijuana and a lot of uh, fruit flavors. Um, so we have seen just in the last few years, a dramatic increase in adolescents turning to vaping different substances. Can you maybe explain the danger of vaping? Because there might even be some parents that don't see it as being as harmful as other things. Well, the danger of vaping is is that you are putting a substance into your lungs. You're smoking something that's going into your lungs. And anytime we put something into our lungs that shouldn't be there, we run the risk of doing damage. That damage may not show up for 10 or 15 or 20 years, sort of like cigarette smoking may not show up right away. But when you start to inhale through the smoke and and vape um, nicotine, for example, you you are putting a substance into your lungs as an adolescent or an adult that the lungs are really not built to take care of. So it becomes very risky. And again, the younger you are, the more likely that you're going to sustain some, uh, some damage as a result. Yeah, for sure. So what can parents do to foster an environment that reduces the risk for using different substances and for dealing with their underlying issues in this way? That's an interesting question because I've had parents ask me, you know, I don't have a teenager yet. My child is like eight, nine, 10 years old. They're not teenagers yet. What can I do to, to lay the foundation? 
And I say that the best thing they can do is start to develop a, a good, solid, trusting relationship with their child. Uh, begin to lay that foundation of trust. Begin to relay that foundation of open communication so that your child feels comfortable coming to you and talking to you about any issue that may be troubling them. When we ask adolescents, what is it that keeps you from talking to your family about the problems that you're having or even your substance use? A large percentage of them will say that what keeps them from talking to their family is a fear of being judged. They fear that their parents are going to judge them. So they want to sort of avoid that type of situation. So I say to parents, you know, it's never too late, begin to develop that, that foundation of trust and open communication with your child. The other thing I say to parents is learn to listen, learn to listen to your child, we can all learn uh, better skills at listening. We're pretty good at listening to words. We're not so good at listening to the feelings behind those words. So what I say to parents is, um, and there is some there are some exercises in my workbook to help parents with this, but begin to 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 work on honing down and 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 getting your listening skills more attuned. Learn to listen to not just what your child is saying, but what your child is feeling. What are the feelings behind the words? Because that's what's going to help your child feel like they're being really understood. When, when they feel that you as a parent not only hear their words, but you hear and understand their feelings, then I think you, you've laid a really solid foundation um, to, to work with your child. Whether it's on alcohol or drug use or any other issue, yeah. you have that foundation. Yeah, that's really good. I. I, I mean, it's as a parent, you know, it, and especially when kids, I have a 16 year old and especially getting to those teen years, it's hard because it's like, oh, how's everything? Everything's fine. You know, like, <laughs> like that's it. Everything's fine. I'm like, okay, well tell me a little bit more. It can be, it can be really hard to kind of certain kids, certain personalities to kind of pull the feelings and emotions out and to explain more. And so I think it's helpful to, you know, like you mentioned, um, not being judgmental and remembering and even just remembering that their brains are not fully developed, you know, and they right. probably don't know how to process their feelings very well. And so they need that guidance. It's, it's hard. It's, it's, it's a hard part of parenting. It's funny. I, I always thought when my kids were little that it would be so much easier when they're older, but I found the opposite to be true. I think the little <laughs> years, you know, you can control them. You can put them in time out. You can, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like it's, it's a little bit easier to handle. So um, yeah. And you, you know, you know, you're so knowledgeable with this and I know you have so much experience. I didn't even get to ask you, how did you get into the addictions field? How, what prompted this? Well, I, I worked for a long time in the area of education in Illinois. Um, and I started to get into this field when I uh, was working at a mental health regional crisis center in central Illinois. Uh, we would have patients that would be sent to us from the hospital. Uh, they would stay for us for a short period of time. They were going through a mental health crisis. So I actually started out in the mental health area. But what I noticed was a large number of, of people that were being sent to our crisis center also had an underlying uh, alcohol or drug 
problem. So I went back to school and, 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 and got a degree in, um, in, in alcohol and drug use. I continued to work uh, for the Mental Health Crisis Center for a number of years, and then I was offered the job in Houston, Texas with, uh, with Menninger Clinic, which, uh, as you noted earlier, is a psychiatric hospital, and began working with uh, adults and adolescents diagnosed with both a mental health issue and a substance abuse issue. So I've spent about two decades working in either mental health or the addictions field. Okay, yeah, and, and they are so interconnected. And even, you know, you mentioned something at the beginning about addiction being a disease. And I think that that that's interesting. I think a lot of times we stigmatize addictions or there's shame associated with addictions and it makes it harder for people to talk about what's going on for them. Um, but if, if we even just break it down as this is another mental health issue. This is just another disease that some people might be more predisposed to than others. I think that that's helpful. How can people help? And this is a good question just to ask you, how, how can we help reduce the stigma of addiction or how can we help support other people, whether it is our adolescents or anyone in our life who is struggling? I, I, th I think, unfortunately, there still is a stigma uh, towards mental health um, and addiction. I think it's much more so with addiction than it is mental health. Um, we're starting to make some progress so that society begins to see, at least in the mental health area, that um, it's a disease. Um, and, and that people um, shouldn't be punished for having um, a, 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 any type of disorder, whether it be uh, um, you know, a mental health issue or an addiction issue. Uh, we haven't made such good progress in the addiction area. I think there still is an attitude that people do this to themselves. People should face consequences for it. Um, and, and, and I think one of the reasons for that is with, with most diseases um, and alcohol and, and, and drug addiction is a disease, but with most diseases, they don't carry the kind of consequences and behaviors that we see with addiction. For example, people who have cancer or diabetes, um, you don't see them out committing crimes, whereas often with uh, severe addiction, you will see that. Well, that behavior has sort of led society to have a very negative attitude towards alcohol and drug use because they equate it with behaviors that society finds um, unacceptable. Um, but, but we are making progress. We are beginning to see addiction as truly being a disease and people suffering from it and, and needing help, which is good. Yeah. And I think that's also helpful for for parents who are concerned about their kids or they see their kids struggling with substance abuse, I, I think it's real easy to, um, as you mentioned, like, oh, well, you made the choice. It was your choice. You got yourself into this. You better figure it out. You know, like, I think that yeah. there are people that just make these blanket statements um, as if it is just a simple choice and it, it's not so simple. It's so much more complicated. 
It's not that simple, especially if a child is using a substance to medicate an underlying psychological issue that they really don't have a lot of control over, like anxiety or depression or some type of trauma. We tend to look at the at the behavior of the drinking or the drug use, and we miss, as parents, the underlying issue. Um, and, and that's why I focus on the book in terms of getting a comprehensive assessment so that you don't miss those areas. Because as parents, we may not be able to identify the underlying issue. We see the behavior, which is unacceptable in many cases, but we're not trained through education or experience to figure out the underlying issue. We may have a child that doesn't want to talk about their anxiety or doesn't want to talk about their depression or doesn't want to talk about their trauma. Uh, we're not trained as parents necessarily to be able to see all those complicated workings. And that's why we have to turn to professionals to figure those things out for us. And that leads to the comprehensive assessment that I talk about in the book. Yeah, yeah, that's good. And there is no shame in getting help either. We no. we need that. We, you know, I think as parents, when we start feeling like we're deficient and being able to connect with our own children or whatever the situation is, it's, it's easy. Oh, well, I should be able to do this myself. It's my kid. I should be able to handle it. But that is not true. That is why we have therapists. That's why we have treatment centers. That's why we have all these external resources. So when, when you have a child who is, is uh, going through some type of an addiction, whether it's alcohol or drugs, sure, the, the, the child is affected, but the entire family is affected. Yeah. The parents are affected. The siblings are affected if they have any. And, 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 and the parents need help too, because a lot of times parents will begin to look at this and they'll begin to say, well, what did I do wrong? What did I miss? Why didn't I see this? I've sat in what we had diagnostic conferences with parents and I would go through the history of their child's use of alcohol or drugs and, and the diagnosis. And I would have parents look at me and they would say, I had no idea this was going on. Or if they did know, they would say, I knew this was going on, but I had no idea that it was this bad. So parents need help, too, because they struggle with a lot of emotions. They struggle yeah. with a lot of guilt. Um, and, and that's why I wrote the, the, the short little uh, workbook for parents. But if you have a child that, that needs help, you as a parent also need help, too. Yeah, that's so important. Yes, I'm so glad you said that. And, and even maybe in some cases, the siblings, if they're siblings, they yes. would need that help as well, because it does, it, it completely changes the entire family dynamic. So that's a, that's a really good point. Yeah. So if I could ask you, you know, the name of the show is Sparking Wholeness, and this is kind of my favorite question to ask every guest, is if you could give one piece of advice to spark someone toward wholeness, what would it be? I would say, take care of yourself, take care of the people that you love, be attuned to what's going on, don't ignore any warning signs, and if necessary, reach out to others, um, that, that, whether it's family or friends or, or, or whomever, so that you don't feel isolated and alone and, uh, and get the support and the help that you need. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's good. And I think that it's so timely, you know, I mean, we, we want to catch these things before they get out of hand. And, yes. and because I think children are struggling, as we mentioned with the anxiety and depression and all of these, you know, anxious feelings because of the world that we're living in right now, it, it could set 
some, maybe some kids up for turning to substances or turning to other coping mechanisms. And so I think that this is really important to talk about and to make sure that we are talking to our kids and paying attention and, and being present because it's, it's hard. It's hard for all of us. Adults are feeling the same way. It is. There's a lot going on out there, especially these days. There's a lot of stress. There's a lot of anxiety. Um, you know, we all get wrapped up with, with what's going on in our lives. And sometimes we miss the subtle little signals that might be going on with our kids. Um, but we can all we can all become better listeners. We can all become, you know, better attuned to what's going on um, and, 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 and help not only ourselves, but our kids and our families as well. Yeah. Yeah. So where can people get in contact with you or look for your book? Is there a website? There is a website and I would encourage anyone to, uh, to, to go to the website. On the website, um, visitors will find um, endorsements. They can read endorsements from the book, uh, from uh, psychologists, psychiatrists, social workers. Um, uh, they also find some uh, book reviews that have been written about the book. Um, they can read newspaper articles. Um, there's a blog section where they can read some uh, blog articles that have been posted and they can read a short sample from the book. They can also order the book directly from the website. They can go to Amazon. There's a link to Amazon. Um, and they can also, you know, email me too through the, uh, through the website. So, so if they have any questions or comments, um, they, can, they can use that section and, and contact me. The website is www helptheaddictedchild.com. Awesome. Thank you. I will also list that in the show notes. So that way, anybody who missed that in, in this, while you're speaking, they'll just be able to click right on it. So um, that's awesome. Great. Thank well, you. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for what you've done. Your work in this field, I think is so important. And I think, um, again, it's, it's so needed to kind of let go of the stigma of mental health issues, addiction issues. And I, I appreciate your role in, in this. Well, thank you. I, I really appreciate you taking the time to have this discussion with me and to help me reach out to others about this topic, especially to parents, grandparents, other family members. So thank you so much for taking the time to help me reach out to these people and to hopefully um, help them. So thank you very much. I appreciate your time. Thanks for tuning in to Sparking Wholeness. For more on all things related to nutrition for mind, body, and soul, check out my website, sparkingwholeness.com. Don't forget to be kind and subscribe to this show wherever you listen to podcasts. And to be really kind, you can leave a nice review. I like those.